This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Yannick Maya. And I'm Luca Levitz Meble. And our topic this week is... Nine months of Swift usage. Awesome. Uh, but first, I have a little bit of follow-up to go through. Um, so first item on the list. Uh, last week, I did some Black Friday shopping. Ooh, I did too. Yeah, I bought myself a crazy one terabyte SSD for my PlayStation 4, which a lot of people have since criticized me for saying like you're crazy buying an ssd for a game console at least buy it for a computer to which i reply well i've been ssd only for five years now on all of my computers so that's not really something that would change much um but yeah uh, my ps4 hard drive had been uh, the stock 500 gigabyte hard drive that came with the thing and it was always full and I knew that if I wanted to get into VR or if I eventually wanted to get Destiny 2, which is apparently going to be a completely new game, uh, I'm going to need a bigger hard drive than the one I have right now. So I got myself a terabyte SSD. And it's kind of ridiculous how much of a performance boost there's been. Um, the main example I want to point out is previously, uh, I usually press the button on the DualShock controller and then turn on my monitor. Uh, when I'm turning on the PS4, just because, like, usually my intention is, oh, I'm going to play PS4, so I press the PS4 button, and then I remember to go turn on the screen. Um, and previously, I had to wait, like, five seconds-ish before something showed up on my monitor. Now, my monitor turns on slower than it takes for the PS4 to wake up. <laughs> Wow, that's impressive then. It's really impressive. Uh, the other thing, like I haven't played a ton of games because uh, I didn't have a drive, an external drive big enough to actually transfer things off. So I basically just copied my save data to a USB drive and then re-downloaded all my games. So I haven't tried all the games yet because they've all been re-downloading. Um, but like Overwatch performance has been significantly better. In Overwatch, the main advantage is if you load faster, you can choose your character before others, and that's important because there's a one hero limit in Overwatch where once someone chooses that character, it, no one else can be that character for the rest of the team. Uh, so if you're a selfish bastard, uh, that is an upgrade you can like consider. You? Yeah, definitely. Uh, and another thing is, one of the, the things that really pushed me towards getting an SSD is I saw comparisons for Destiny in particular. And I mean, I've spent 850 hours of my life in Destiny now, so oh my it's probably a reasonable assumption to say that if this is a 10-year franchise and we're in the third year right now, there's going to be a lot more hours spent in Destiny in the next seven years. Uh, so I saw comparisons side-by-side side of hard drive and SSD, and the performance gains were so huge that basically it's going to pay for itself in productivity, in quotes, inside the game. Um, so yeah, highly recommended upgrade if you can afford it. Of course, it costs about 300 Canadian dollars for a gigabyte uh, terabyte SSD, which is reasonable, but still outside the reach of many people who would rather just spend $100 for two, a two terabyte hard drive. Um, but I was surprised when I asked you that question, because I still, I don't know why, but I was still thinking that those SSD were around like five or 600 uh, Canadian dollars at least. So the fact that they were maybe the below four, five, four hundred dollars is pretty nice. So one of the things is uh, PS4, well, base PS4 is SATA 2, and this is a SATA 3 SSD, but I didn't feel like I had to push the speed to the maximum because I wouldn't be getting that anyway. Um, but if you're going into the really super high-speed SSDs, uh, then you might actually 
see uh, more of a difference in terms of price. Uh, but mine was like a Toshibo CZ. Uh, I think it's TR150 or something like that. It's like, it's a good, I'm going to say consumer, but consumers aren't buying SSDs to put into random shit. Uh, but like, it, it's a good basic SSD to get. Uh, if you're just looking for the big gains from going to SSD in the first place and not the huge gains you can get if you get the top of the line SSDs necessarily. Uh, but it's recommended upgrade if you have a PS4 and you're running low on space and can afford it. Uh, I have really been enjoying the increased performance since my upgrade. And I will enjoy installing more games on my PS4 now that I have space again. Good. Next up. Um... One of the things I forgot to mention on the last episode, well, actually, I should first point out that the rest of the follow-up is all about the last episode on Japan. Um, things that I've either realized from preparing for my trip in the last week, uh, or in the last two weeks, or uh, stuff that has come from our listeners. So let me start off with uh, currency conversion. This is something I had not mentioned at all, but there is a cool trick in iOS and watchOS for currency conversion that very few people know about, so I'm going to share it here on the show, and that is you can use the Stocks app for currency conversion, and coupled with the Stocks complication in watchOS, you can basically have exchange rates, if you're obsessed with those, like me, uh, on your watch face at all times. So the trick for this is uh, Stocks uses Yahoo Finance for their backend, and Yahoo Finance implements currency conversions as stock symbols. So you just have to put uh, your two currency symbols next to each other. So in my case, it would be CADJPY equals X that I would put into the thing. And that is a stock symbol that is recognized by the Yahoo Finance API and will return a currency conversion for the current rate. So that is super useful if you uh, are looking for use for the Stocks app, uh, because a lot of people just put put it in a folder or now in iOS 10 uninstall the Stocks app and never use it for anything. Uh, I keep it around solely for this. Uh, I like having a complication, and I know there are a bunch of other like uh, currency converter apps out there, but I don't care enough about currency conversion to go get another app when this is doing exactly what I need it to do, and it comes with the phone. Uh, next up is an error in something I said last episode, and that was uh, the iPhone SE having one SKU. There are actually three SKUs. Oh, really? Yeah, uh, I didn't think about it, because there's only one SKU in Canada. Uh. So uh, <laughs> the catch is there are three SKUs. There's one for U.S., there's one for China, and there's one for the rest of the world and, in parentheses, Sprint in the U.S., because somehow they didn't manage to put Sprint on the same SKU as the rest of the U.S. Uh, so the important notes for this is 2G and 3G bands are consistent across the U.S. and international models, so it is a world phone in that respect. The China model, I don't know anything about because they have not documented that extensively on the uh, on the Apple website. You can only get LTE information for it, which is incomplete. Um, but what this means is if you're in the U.S. and you say, hey, I have an iPhone SE, I'm going to go to Japan. Uh, well, sorry, I lied to you. Uh, Japanese LTE won't work on it. If you're a Sprint user in the U.S. and you get your phone unlocked, then Japanese LTE will work on it. But any other carrier in the U.S., you're basically screwed and will have to use 3G, uh, which, as I said, is the FOMA network uh, in most cases if you're using a Docomo uh, SIM card. And your mileage may vary for coverage there. But you're safe. As far as I understand, you're safe with the normal phone or the like international model. 
Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, if you bought your phone anywhere else aside from China, Japanese LTE works. Oh, good. So that is cool. Uh, the problem is it's probably not going to stay this way in the future because Suica support added an extra SKU to the iPhone 7 line, and guess what? The international models don't support Japanese bands anymore. <laughs> huh, interesting. I didn't know that part, too. So that so that's why it's a different SKU. It has Suica and the Japanese bands. Hmm. Well, I, I think they were going to do it anyway. Like, the reason China has its own SKU is not because the international phone doesn't support Chinese carriers. In fact, it does support Chinese carriers. Uh, it's because they have a bunch of different things that need to be turned off for censorship reasons in China. And I have a feeling that it's basically the same thing here, except, curiously, the Japanese carriers are missing from the international model anyway. Uh, they didn't just leave it there. And maybe it's a safe bet to say that more people internationally tra travel to China and would get benefit out of those Chinese bands than Japanese bands. That's perfectly valid. I mean, it's a good argument, but it still sucks. Uh <laughs> I seriously miss the good old days of the iPhone 4S. Yeah, I know. There was one model around the clock. Yeah, good old days. Uh, next up is some follow-up from friend of the show, Spirit Snare, which is going to be joining me in Japan in a couple of weeks. Yay! Uh, so first off, some really useful tips for uh, Tokyo Skytree. Tokyo Skytree, uh, as I mentioned on the last episode, is an observation deck. It is the big hotness uh, observation deck right now in Tokyo. And there are a shit ton of people waiting in line for it. But there is a special line for foreigners where for a special uh, small premium, you can skip ahead of regular Japanese tourists. Sucks to be them. Uh, it's called the Fast Sky Tree Ticket, and it's about a thousand yen more than a regular ticket. That's about $10 US. Uh, you do need to show your international ID. But what is cool about this is even if someone else in your group is an international resident of Japan or... You have a Japanese person accompanying you. Uh, as long as there's one international person, you are eligible to take that line and just present your ID and pay the extra surcharge, and you can be up there much quicker. So that is cool to know. I'm surprised that it's not the inverse, where the international line is already always full and the uh, like domestic line is nearly empty. Japan has a lot of pride for the Skytree, so... I'm not that surprised that there is, like, huge Japanese tourist lines. Okay. Um, next up, uh, in the Odaiba section of the last episode, uh, I forgot to mention Diver City, which is another mall across uh, the street from Aqua City Odaiba. And uh, apparently it's a great mall, but there's also a massive life-sized Gundam statue there. So if you're into Gundam, you may actually want to get your photo taken with a giant-ass Gundam. Uh, this is something I had forgot to mention on the last episode, so now you know. And you had a question on the last episode about bathhouses, uh, about what the mix of old and young people was. Yeah, totally. And my friend is a big enthusiast of bathhouses, so he actually gave some insight on this, and he said that Sento, which are just public bathhouses, uh, period, are not popular with young people at all. But Onsen, which are natural hot springs, are much, much more popular with younger people and are more mixed but still skews older um so he wanted to let you know about that yeah so in in a way it's more like like those uh natural like hot springs in a way they're more like what we have as spas here so it's yes skewed to older people but it's more like 
trendy now and it's part of uh like nice activity to do in cities so younger people also attend to those places yeah and there are some absolutely beautiful ones in the countryside as well so if you're doing the tourism stuff uh i think that could be really attractive uh so that's it for my follow-up this week uh, I know you had something to say before we go into the main topic. Yes. Uh, as a last reminder, I would like to remind our listeners that this is the last episode before a long hiatus. Um, Yannick mentioned a lot during follow-up and last episode that he's going back to Japan this year. And I would like to uh, wish him a good trip. And I will be on the plane while this episode is posted. Yes, because for a rare occasion, I'll be the one doing the editing and posting the episode. So if uh, I screw up something, you can blame me. So uh, for once, I'll have to say, send an email to me. Uh, so yeah, so we were, we are taking a two months. Yeah, this, the two months is approximate um, while Yannick is in Japan. Uh, make sure to follow us on Twitter, on our personal account or the podcast account. Uh, we should have news in January about uh, the 2017 run of Limipo. And so in late January, when the Yannick is about to come back uh, here, we'll get more news. Uh, and stay subscribed to the podcast because there might be a special treat sometime in January. Just saying. Yeah, we will try to do something. It may not be a full episode like I think it was last year that we done that when you were in Japan. But uh, we are maybe planning something special as uh, either a New Year's gift or a Christmas gift. Yep. Good. So now let's talk about Swift. Uh, <laughs> I did mention that we are... M- keeping the best topic for last it's maybe the best topic but at least it's the topic we teased a, a lot so uh, this topic is about my personal and mostly my professional experience with a uh, swift newest swift uh, apple's newest programming language swift so let's jump into this big topic because i have lots to say i'm sure you think uh, some too so first we'll start with the background about my job because i think i uh, I don't think I've spoke into details about my uh, GOB job and mostly just like referred that I was an iOS programmer. So I started three years ago uh, working at the, a company called Lightspeed POS and it's located here in Montreal. I've been hired to work on a quote unquote new because this app is officially now uh, three years old, but it's an application called Lightspeed Retail POS for point of sale. Um, just to give a bit back, a uh, small background about uh, some uh, of the application. This application was uh, most of it is an Objective C, and obviously, since the last uh, nine months, our team is uh, adding uh, new stuff in Swift. And obviously, the oldest part of this application is about uh, three years, three and a half years old. Um, so now that is out of the way, I want to talk about uh, the beginning of our Swift usage personally and also uh, professionally. Uh, professionally, I didn't use Swift 1.0, maybe a bit of uh, 1.2 personally, but at work and in my main, Swift usage started in around uh, Swift uh, 2.1, which puts it in uh, last March. Uh, also, it's topics that will come back later, but uh, we haven't lived a major Swift migration yet. <laughs> uh, we did felt the pain regarding uh, the, pain, the pain related to a release of new Swift version. So we did uh, do minor Swift version by upgrading our code base from Swift 2.1 to Swift 2.2. And then when Xcode 8 got released, we did the same migration from 2.2 to 2.3. 
what about the great the great renaming of Swift 3 and Swift 3 itself? Um, we've played a bit with Swift 3 uh, and we also started to planning this migration, but because of timing constraints for work and also for our recording schedule, uh, I plan to give an update after our hiatus. So it might be my subject when we come back because right now as we speak, the migration is planned during uh, our hiatus of the podcast. So I'm sure I'll be able to bring back and maybe do another uh, Swift episode mainly focused about Swift 3. So before I jump into some of the areas that I want to talk, especially about Swift, either feature or more like uh, design thoughts, I have a question for you, Yannick. I can see where this is going. Where it is going then? You're going to ask me what my experience with Swift is. Oh my goodness! You start to you're you're so good at knowing what my questions are. Maybe the I'm way better than you last week when we were trying to. Oh come on, come on. Okay. Uh, to be honest, I was so um, immersed in all the information you gave me that I had seriously no question. I have a couple of them, and you all answered them. So. Oh, that's nice. That's. But nice. if I recall yeah, correctly, so... before I start, if I recall correctly, you did live. Uh, 1.0 to 2.0 migration because you started using Swift yep. in the 1.0 days. And there were no issues for me whatsoever. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, so basically my overall uh, background with Swift is I played around with Swift 1 and most of the stuff I did with Swift 1 was mostly just dicking around. I had thrown... I was still working on EOS at the time. Uh and I was considering briefly throwing out my Objective C code and translating it to Swift. Oh my, oh my, I'm so happy that you said that. And I spent a week uh, trying to do this with Swift 1. And let me tell you, it wasn't pretty. Um, it was one of the most frustrating experiences I had had in my life as a programmer. And I basically messed around with it and i saw lots of promising things but it was so much of a headache to actually get to work correctly that i put it on the shelf and said okay screw this i'm going back to objective c and we'll see in a year uh if this works any better and swift 2 um fixed a lot of the issues that i had with it uh there were lots like i was using this like literally the week after they announced swift right so it was obviously not ready for production <laughs> Uh, and like one of the things is EOS was especially dependent on stuff like uh, well first of all it was I was using oh shit what was it called uh, Facebook's animation framework whose name I've forgotten uh, pop like pop oh I was yeah. about to say which one <laughs> yeah so pop uh, is written in Objective C plus plus oh my okay so that introduces some funky stuff sometimes. Uh, I was using C APIs quite a bit because the GIF generation engine that uh, EOS was using was all uh, part of image framework, uh, which is included with uh, iOS and OS X. So all of that is written in C. So you have to interact with C APIs and type conversions between native Swift types, Objective-C types, C types and occasionally sometimes trying to box things in a way that Objective C was being used in funky ways for pop to it, it was a nightmare. Um, and I think like for basic code that does mostly Objective C ish things, 
like was using APIs that were written in Objective-C and didn't really interface with all of the C-specific aspects of it. I think Swift was, it was still early to use at that point, but it was usable. Whereas I would not say it was usable at all with C and uh, C++ backend stuff. Well, technically, I think like C++ stuff isn't even entirely supported yet. It is not, not sure. supported. You're yeah. Right. So like trying to mess with those aspects, it wasn't ready for that until Swift 2. Swift 2, the C stuff at least got out of the way and lots of the type-related stuff got nicer. Uh, and I think it was just a much better experience. Where with Swift 2, I, could f- I felt like I could actually write applications with it and not want to kill myself. Um, and that's good. Like, and, I've, and I wrote like partial applications in Swift 2. Uh, so none of them have shipped because they were sort of in my... Uh, last year when I was sort of flailing around at the end of the summer and I was like, well, EOS isn't selling and I need to do something. So I'm going to bun- work on like three of these really small apps that I can ship at the end of the year. And none of them actually got far enough to be in a shippable state when I needed them to be. So I sort of started looking for a job and that's when I started working at the insurance company. Um, but like I had a good time writing those applications. It's just that I wasn't productive enough in that time uh, to actually get them out. And at that point, the main frustration I had, which is a story we've told numerous times on this podcast, is just APIs that are broken in Swift. Uh, I've mentioned numerous times, like, there was this watchOS thing where uh, you were getting this callback saying, I've got the new state of the application, and normally you would expect to get, like, uh, a value from that, and, like previously a long long time ago like that field was optional so it didn't matter if you got nil in that callback you could deal with it but then at a certain point they changed that callback to actually not be optional but they continued passing nil to it and since that's impossible according to what the swift runtime sees it doesn't let you handle the nil so your app crashes the first time you launch your app on the watch every single time there was like no fix for that i could do because that's just how swift is by enforcing these things. And like I don't think that's necessarily a fault of the language, but I think it is something that is going to prevent people from using the language when things like that become possible. Whereas in Objective-C, worst case scenario, you would get a nil object. And if you actually called something on that nil object, it would just get ignored and it wouldn't be a big deal. Um, so like that's one specific a- example where I was super frustrated because like because I had chosen Swift... I was then put into a situation that I simply could not resolve without switching back to Objective-C, and that pissed me off. But otherwise, like, I've had good experiences developing in Swift. Um, I haven't really played much with Swift 3. I've written, like, parts of an application uh, for stuff that I was dicking around with and probably won't have enough time to finish before I go to Japan. Uh, But, like, it's been fine. It has been very similar to Swift 2 to me, except the names for stuff has changed. But oh, yeah, totally. like I, I wasn't migrating code over. I was just starting from scratch again, so I don't see as huge of a difference. Oh, yeah, that's less of a pain for the devs, especially for you. Yeah, and I guess like if I look at... Uh, like I follow this one pro Overwatch player who also happens to be an iPhone developer as a day job, and um, he basically said, like, I don't understand why uh, how Apple is trying to convince people to switch to Swift because every single year 
there is this huge migration. And arguably, you can say Swift 3 is going to be the only one of this scale, right? It's never yeah, going to yeah. happen again. They did this to like put the groundwork to say this is what Swift is going to look like from now on. And from this point, it should be more incremental stuff. Like, I get that. But right. it's you know not... What? I'll stop you there because you're going a I'm bit I'm spoiling too the deep. thing, yeah. You're not spoiling too. You're just going a bit too deep for now. Uh, like, I wanted to stay at more like talk about uh, some project. And now you're more about like either Swift dislikes or Swift uh, pluses too that you mentioned the stuff you like. And I want to come back to that later. All right, all right. So before before I stop you again, do you have anything to add with your experience, like just as like using versions? Not really, no. Okay, good. So um, and it's super, I, I like when I ask you those questions because 99.9% of the time, you just tick all of the bucks I wanted. And you'll see. <laughs> I um, tick too many boxes. Sometimes you do, like just right now, but you'll see that all of the things you mentioned will come back uh, later in this episode because uh, it is stuff I specifically want to talk. Um, so let's dive into the deep reason why this I wanted to do this episode for so long. Uh, Swift is in cul- and its culture is bringing a new approach to architect and write application on Apple's platform. And it's introducing a bunch of developers to f- functional programming. And that's including me. Uh, I've done a bit of functional programming because I had functional programming classes in university, but it's a bit back in my mind. Like I remember when they were introducing Swift, they were um, they were showing like map and reduce and all of that stuff. And that's what typically is what people associate to uh, functional programming. It's like, yeah, I remember doing that. And then the exact reason why I wanted to do this episode is from the following statement. Uh-oh. God save Objective-C. Long live Objective-C. Isn't it? I don't think, and that, that, that's the reference I'm making, right? I don't think Objective-C is dying. And I don't think it is dead either. Then that we have found our new king. Um, obviously, there's a big push on being more functional with the, functional with the role of Swift. But there's a current trend about Objective-C dynamism and Swift staticness that rubs oh, me God. the wrong way. And of course, Yannick, you can insert a joke about dynamism in Swift here. Nice meme. But before we continue about the pl- before we continue about the place of each language. I want to go on a small rant that will exactly be related to this joke. I, 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 I still think that Swift is still pretty young, and it is run nice that it brings tape safety and goes without dynamism. But on the other side, Objective-C is so dynamic that in specific cases, if you don't uh, protect yourself correctly, it can bite you and bite you hard. But at the same time, it will bring you way more way different powers that you might enjoy and might need in your application. But it doesn't mean that dynamic languages are bad and should be avoided like a plague. And that's right now what I've time, uh, I start to see. Like Every time there's a di- discussion, it's always Swift versus Objective-C. And every time the kind of the context around those discussions, those, in my opinion, toxic discussions, always imply that, yeah, yeah, Swift is dead. Just let it go. Let it what? Go. <laughs> Not Swift is dead, sorry. Objective C is dead. Okay, oh yeah, goodness. I was like, that what? Was, yeah, I know, I know. I'm so sorry. Uh, and see, like, one um, I uh, okay, wall break, Objective C is not dead. Even if you think it is, 
and even if you have you want to have toxic discussion about swift versus objective c the current attitude that some people have about functional programming being some kind of high ground solution for the best developers totally rubs me the wrong way and sadly those people that have this kind of high ground value of swift also thinks that objective c should just be like slaughtered and die and whatever and okay can i can i give my nuanced opinion on this because i think you're pretty one-sided sure uh so first of all i will state that i absolutely love objective c objective c like if you tell me like tell me the language you love the most between swift and objective c i love objective c most i don't think objective c has a future i think if you continue to believe that objective c is the correct answer you will get bitten in the ass because apple has this history of telegraphing their directions of where they're going and i think obviously they can't get rid of objective c just yet because they have so much code already written in objective c that they can't just dump it overnight and rewrite everything in swift like i tried to do uh but i think it's clear that going forward any development that is going to be taking place at apple is going to be in swift if possible and I think that they're just going to push Swift until Objective-C becomes such a minority thing that it basically doesn't exist anymore. And I think the parallel is sort of like, it's not exactly the same, but it's sort of like iPads versus PCs, right? It's like, here is this thing that for the majority of our developers is capable of doing the job that they need to have done. So they can use that, and then anyone who is not able to use that right now can use the other thing, and slowly we'll push it in the corner and not ship any Macs for three years or something like that. Uh, so No, and I totally understand that, and it's funny because it's going to my point, is even if we take this rent into consideration, I do think personally that there's a place right now for a what Swift is bringing, so static, a static, a more static language, type safety, and also there's a place for a bit of dynamic feature, and I do think that both languages can benefit from each other at this moment. The other thing I sort of have, uh, op- I oppose to in your worldview of how the Swift diehards. Uh, operate is yes uh, you look at the people who are doing primarily swift development these days and they these, these days and they are primarily pushing functional and often functional reactive programming down your throat and they are saying like this is the future get with it and like it, it's even sort of hard these days to find swift example code that isn't using like rx swift or reactive coco and that pisses me off so much because i hate frameworks like that but uh, I think like you can also view Swift from exactly the angle that I think Apple sees it at, which is this is sort of an alternate syntax for Objective-C, the code that you're already writing. And I think it does that job perfectly fine. And the functional aspect is there if you want to make use of it. I think it's fair to say that the visible people who are talking about Swift are trying to push it because they are big believers of that idea. But I don't think it's something that's wrong with the language. I think it's something that, well, I don't even think it's necessarily wrong, but it's something that is the case with the community that has taken to Swift's ideals. Oh, yeah. And I think what I meant by my rent, too, is it feels to me, and I think I'll end the rent on that. I didn't want to blow up. (laughs) I did want to share my feelings and thoughts about it. But 
it feels to me that if you take a more pragmatic approach that I'll describe a bit later, and I think, Yannick, you did add these moments in some of your project that you want to take a more pragmatic approach to migrating away from objectivity or just like having both in the same code base. It feels to me that if you decide, okay, for my need, a pragmatic approach is better, you're kind of going against the flow and it's super bad. And that is the main gripe in my rant is that's not the case. You can take this decision. I would go against people saying that, okay, Objective C stay to live for like 30 years again. That's not true. And I totally agree with you on that. But I wouldn't say like today, it's time to switch to functional programming and maybe reactive programming and all of it at the same time and ditch all of the Objective C code that you have in your code base. I don't want to drag this on too much longer, but I think the analog that comes to mind for web development in particular is like everybody did their websites in Ruby on Rails in 2007 or whatever, <laughs> and then Node.js comes out, and everyone's like, "Fuck this Ruby on Rails shit! I'm gonna go make my website in Node." And they ditch all their existing code base and they go do it in Node. And you're like, "Yeah, but like, first of all, they're repeating the same mistakes that they did in Ruby on Rails in Node right now, so probably not the right time to jump into Node right now." And is that really the best use of your time? Can't you just make your website better instead? Uh, I don't know. It, it sort of s reminds me of that situation in many ways when you see people like saying, well, rewrite your entire app in Swift. And I mean, like there is added friction if you try to do a pragmatic half Objective-C, half Swift approach. Like there's stuff that you need to manually bridge yourself by writing code. Um, and hey, seriously, now that we're talking about that, that was my next <laughs> can point. transition into you. Yeah. I'm a genius, man. Oh, you are. So we'll continue this swift journey by discussing what is, in my opinion, the place of each language. And my first point with that is taking into consideration switching completely away from Objective-C. And it's funny because let's go back to episode four. Do you remember what episode four was about? Shit, I referenced uh, episode four recently, and I forgot what it is now. So the title was, uh, is... Man, it was one of my episodes, too. I don't even know. <laughs> yes, it is. It is a Lokma No oh, Sub. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in that episode, you took us to your journey of learning Japanese. And one of your and many people's strategy to learn a language faster was to immerse themselves faster as much as they could. Yes. So <laughs> now I remember. It is a common strategy to do that, to learn something faster. And personally, I also think that it applies to computer languages. It is a tactic that I think personally you and I did use, either in your current jobs or in the past. And that's why I think since Swift's introduction, we can find tough, tons of resources. You mentioned a couple of uh, blog posts about teams, people completely rewriting application in Swift. You also tried to do it with uh, from Objective-C to Swift in the 1.0 beta days. And obviously, um, there's advantages to that approach. And I would like to iterate some. I think you mentioned, so I won't stay too, late, too much on that, but... Some some advantages are it makes easy to implement and design your application in a Swifty way. And for some people, and that's why I decided to call it Swifty way, because for some people right now, what an, what makes an application Swifty in its code design is not pretty clear, right? When we look at Objective-C code, yes, there's different code style, but all of those code style 
kind of refer to a way to write Objective C code. Like, it, like it's kind of I wouldn't say a Bible because I don't want to make religious like quotes and religious references with all of the Apple stuff. But like it's easy to understand. Okay, this person understands how to properly write Objective C code the way that Apple kind of describe their guidelines to properly write Objective C code. And right now we don't have that. People start to bring those and migrating away completely from Objective C makes it even easier to completely immerse yourself into one of those approaches. Small tangent on that. Do you think that one of the reasons that RX Swift and Reactive Coco have been getting so much popularity in Swift is because they sort of offer this sort of framework under which you know how to structure your code, whereas there's no real style or uh, idioms developed for Swift officially by Apple to actually fill that void in absence of one of those frameworks. I think it helps. And those, from what I've heard, those framework were a bit, they had their kind of, how am I going to say, again, like religious and cult terms, <laughs> but they have their following in the Objective-C, uh, in their Objective-C code base. Um, but you've, you've, when you were using those frameworks in Objective-C, you see that it was completely different. It felt different. And I don't have like first-hand experience on those, but I've seen code from friends and colleagues that showed me. And you see that, it, okay, it's a different paradigm applied to a more Objective-C paradigm. So it, it has this conflict. Whereas in Swift, like you're saying, maybe Swift is, right now is a more malleable to those paradigms that they fit. They have some common knowledge, common teams, and the malleable part can be used to make it fit more something like RX Swift. Cool. Next point: um, make use of Swift-only feature available throughout your code base, and that's a point I will come out uh, in this uh, episode because I think it is the it's on the plus list here for migrating away, and it's also on the downside for <laughs> keeping a pragmatic approach. And obviously there's uh, tons of um, approach to make your sw your code use most of the Swift feature. And sadly, some of those features are not available in the Objective-C to Swift and Swift to Objective-C bridge that Apple is providing when you use both languages in the same application. But at the same time, the Apple have been updating Swift throughout the manner and the, the major and the minor version and adding and adding more functionality to this bridge. So when I added that, take into consideration that my kind of my kind of field of vision is more on Swift too, where some of those are pretty, like some of those Swift features that are not available through the bridge is pretty limited. I think a good example of this is lightweight generics that was recently added to uh, Objective C that fits some of the paradigms of Swift. And obviously, and I think it, it goes back to all of this the discussion we just had about RX Swift is if you're somebody that loves bleeding edge technology. You just want, okay, every time I do something, fuck the old thing. I'm starting new. And it kind of, you're, I think your example of Rails and Node.js is pretty that. It's people, and those people will never get away. And they have the right to stay here. And they have the right to say, okay, I want to always be on the latest, latest, latest alpha beta version of a technology to make sure that I'm the first one using it and paving the way. Well, yeah, I think that's part of the 
other appeal of being one of the first people to like switch entirely to Swift is you become immediately aware of what the limitations of Swift is because if something you were doing before is not easily doable in the new thing, you'll know because it's not going to be this class that you forget to translate to Swift like when you're incrementally doing it class by class. You'll find out straight away because like if it's a core part of your application that doesn't translate, then it's game over <laughs> from there, right? Totally, totally, yes, totally. But on the other side... We have, uh, you'll have to justify seriously rewriting a whole application. And depending on your code base, you have like application like you mentioned that are pretty small. Maybe they were being developed at this moment. And you have like, I wouldn't say old, but like, I would say like mature code bases where you have like a couple of thousands of files. And I don't want to know how much lines of code in them because they are mature products. And rewriting your application completely in those cases is a hard pill to swallow. Yeah. And obviously, this is the types of product I'm working on. This product is three years old. Yes, I wouldn't say it's an old application, but it is a mature code base. I don't have numbers about those lines because I was too lazy to take a look at them. But uh, one of my colleagues, while planning the Swift migration, just took a look at the number of Swift files and lines of code we add. And the number is pretty big and so it makes the uh swift migration a bit uh uh scary but uh we'll see uh, in the future so obviously um this is not the approach like we're not co- doing a completely rewrite of our application at work uh we've decided to use a more pragmatic approach to this transition and the pragmatic approach will be described in those following terms so we you we are always good at staying up to date on Xcode, so we also update our project to make sure that it is super easy to add Swift in them, while understanding that we still have to work in a Objective C code base. And the main downside that this approach has for uh for sometimes for us and for maybe more Swift uh cutting cutting edge people is the way we use Swift right now feels more like an Objective-C 3.0 and less than the new way of thinking that Swift is bringing to the table. Obviously, bringing more Swift code into our application helps me and us learn a bit at a slower speed, but still following the trend and following the flow, uh, the new Swift paradigms without feeling that everything is changing all the time. And... uh, We'll come back to the migrations a bit. <laughs> um, obviously, um, like I said, our vision is a bit tinted because we're not on Swift 3 yet. So uh, the Swift migration might affect our definition of pragmatic Swift in our projects. Uh, the great renaming of frameworks affect might affect the way our object APIs are designed. And we have still decided on what we want to do. We are working on a plan. Uh, that's something we'll have to, to do in the coming days. And obviously, I'll keep that for a future Swift 3 episode. Just for people who are listening who aren't necessarily familiar with Swift, can you explain the great renaming of stuff? Good. Uh, the gist of it is Apple used to have a naming convention in the Objective-C and up to Swift 2.0 days that were following naming convention. I think uh, one of the examples is, I think one of the main, yes, one of the main points is that by reading your 
API endpoints on an object, it makes sense as if it were an English sentence. I, uh, I think an example of that is if I want to create an image from some kind of binary data on UI image, you can just do like, oh no, sorry, let's do with image name simpler. Like I know that somewhere in my application, I have an image called blah, blah, blah. So the endpoint on UI image to get this image is UI image, image named. And then you pass, you pass in a string, which is contains the name of your image. So uh, this naming is also a bit redundant sometimes because it will include uh, the name, the types in the sentence because it has more of an English grammar in it. So I know an example of that is when you want to uh, convert points to one view to another, uh, they will say like convert points from this region to this other region. And in Swift 3, they will make the naming of the methods and the API endpoints a bit more concise. So they might remove like English word that will make it more of a sentence and just say like the method should be more of an action, like convert. And you know, because it's on a point that you want to convert from this point to this point. So you won't say convert point to point or convert point to rec, for example. You would just say convert point, or you convert to something and then because in your method you have the parameter types the types will tell you okay i need to convert from a point to a rec and the method signature will just be convert to so it's simplifying those interfaces and as you can expect apple has done this great renaming throughout most of his of their frameworks including uh you Yes, you like it. No, it's only in uh, in foundation. I'm sorry. And but as its name suggests, foundation is kind of Apple's foundation of your application. So it is used throughout your application. And uh, yep, it affects may mostly all of the API calls uh, that you do to the Apple frameworks. Sounds good. Good. Uh, now that we discussed a bit about what were our strategy by maybe switching completely or not. I want to move to another topic that consumes nearly half of my coding time. Uh-oh. Which is unit testing. Oh. I th I think it's something that I've mentioned in Yannick's episode about this a six months anniversary in his previous job, but I'll restate it here. Um, <laughs> some might say that I have the chance or I have the malchance of working in a team that has a deep unit testing culture. So sometimes when I talk with people that doesn't do unit testing, I have a unit, a unit test bias. Um, so the, one of the first questions we had when we started to integrate Swift is, how is Swift affecting our ability to write unit tests? And if you're only using Apple's XITest suite, everything for works as it used to be. The same feature available, maybe the name of the method changed a bit, uh, some API have been replaced to be more like in a way in Swift, everything is like equitable or uh, not everything, but like it's easier to make, to verify equality on stuff. So you don't have to do, okay, I want to specify pointer equality or I want to really specify just are these two object contains the same data, even if there are two different boxes. So in our Objective-C test, we've decided to use the mock object strategy to facilitate testing our uh, code base. As a reminder, uh, mock objects are objects that mimic the behavior of real objects, but gives you a way to control what is this behavior. I think the best example I can give you is um, 
if you were to um, if you were to test a view that needs to trigger a network call in that view controller, for example, you wouldn't want to talk to the network directly in the unit test and wait for a response. You just want to talk to an object that has the same facade as your network layer, but is not the real network layer. So you can simulate response, simulate errors, and makes it easier to test whether your view controller reacts to uh, those uh, behavior. So it, it, it is super easy to abstract it Accept those behavior in a controlled way, and this is where mock objects shine. If we apply the mock object concept to Objective C, uh, we'll see that Objective C's dynamics aspect makes it a good candidate to dynamically create those objects. You can use reflection to autom automatically fake the API on an object and control its behavior. Right now, there there's kind of two libraries, third party, obviously because Apple hasn't provide uh, a mock object library in their own IDE, but there's two third-party libraries that I've seen in Objective-C that, that is easily um, available to make use of mock object. Uh, and there is OCMock and OCMockito. Um, I'll be honest, I wasn't there when this decision was uh, taken on which library to use, but we've decided to use uh, OCMock2. I think the main reason is when we decided to to use it uh, to choose one, only OCMock was out. I think uh, OCMockito was like released in 2014, uh, but uh, OCMock2 is pretty old and it's pretty stable. And it has been a lot of people using it, and it has been around since uh, 2004. So taking into this question that we like to isolate the behavior of our object and the dependencies, how does a library like OCMock fare in the, uh, the world of the Swift? It does work, but it has its limitation. And I didn't, we didn't mention a lot that Swift is more static. It's like you define something and when you run the application, you cannot change an object. Where, whereas Objective-C, if you want to add behavior to that object while the application is running, you can define that. And obviously, OCMock uses those dynamic behavior of FCC to implement those objects. So it requires your Swift code, your Swift classes, to be NS object-based Swift classes. And the other limitation is we need to, pass, to, to migrate to the new version of OCMock, which is uh, OCMock3. And it is required for Swift because um, Swift OCMock2 was built as a library and not a framework. And that's a problem we run into because since it's beginning, I think they are fixed now. It's a bit weird because uh, we took a look at that every six months since the release of OCMock3. But in its beginning, OCMock3 was slower by a big factor, like by a 10 times factor, if I recall correctly. So imagine where when your unit test takes two minutes to run, it takes 20 minutes to run. It's a big problem. So that's why we never migrated to OCMock3, which in this case limits our uh, our ability to use the mock object concept to uh, have a good unit test suite. So we still decide we still decided to use that concept in Swift, but we'll have to look at different tools. And right now the tools in Swift, there's some tools that can kind of generate that they will read your code and read the, read the classes you've specified that you want and maybe generate those mock, but it is not easy, as easily usable as 
what OCMOC were, so we decided to rely on a more verbal technique to do mocking. And it's more like it has been kind of used, all of my colleagues say that it was like when they, they look at the unit tested Java or C++ code base, it is kind of the default bare-bone technique to do uh, mocking in those languages and to just to subclass your class and when you subclass it, you just mock the behavior. So you fake yep. what it needs and that's it. And, and that will run into conflict because part of Swift 3 uh, Oh god, I forgot. <laughs> yes, subclassing has become into a big topic. Uh, we still haven't decided what we'll have to do with that and we still need to understand what uh, the final and the default uh, public access means in the Swift 3 land and what we need to have. Because uh, just to give Arlison a quick reminder, uh, it has been a big discussion in the Swift evolution before Swift 3 where people wanted objects to be final as default. And what final means is you define its behavior and an external user of that object cannot modify or increment its uh, functionality. So if it defined a, a convert method to convert from type A to type B, I cannot say like, oh, I want to take this behavior and just modify it a bit to my need. So I want the original behavior plus removing a case or adding a case. So in the, in this is where the subclassing like in broad strokes shines. And if the developer of that object decides, no, no, this object, should work this way, stay this way, then it becomes impossible to subclass behavior and to override method functionality. And that has been a big a topic. And uh, I think I'll be, I'll be able to bring back an update uh, in my Swift 3 episode about that and see what we do. Uh, before I go on on specific features, do you have anything to add? Not really. Okay, then right now we'll uh, talk about Features I enjoy and feature I wouldn't say that I don't I not dislike, but I, I think the best way to put it, it is feature that I'm not getting used to yet. And I think it's those feature, the more I use Swift, the more I start to better understand them and see their potential. So features I enjoy. Um, earlier I re uh, referred to Swift as Objective-C 3.0, our usage of it. And uh, this term was uh, coined by uh, my colleague and friend Bertrand. And it's funny because we were having this this exact discussion, like the, what we liked and a bit dislike and what where we want Swift to go. Uh, so uh, it's funny because it is um, part of the discussion that kind of helped me draft this uh, section. So um, first feature I gladly enjoy, even if it, it could be uh, limited when you use it over the... Swift and Objective-C bridge are enums. Um, I might say that it is my right now my favorite uh, Swift language feature. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. They're but, really powerful. Yeah, they're the power compared to Objective-C, mostly C-style enum, is amazing in Swift. Like the their power grew so much, and I think the main two reason why I think they are so powerful and so useful now is for the two reasons. In, in the C world, enums are just integer. And now an enum can be mostly anything. And the main reason why it can be, not the main reason, but the main aspect it can be, it can be a string. 
And I've been I've had a shit ton of example where I wanted to have enums that are a string and now I can have that. And the other one that I the other feature the other power that enum got that I really like is also associated value in an enum case. So uh, let's say that I have a, the best example that Apple has in their documentation is you have a barcode enum and you want to say that either the barcode is a UPC or EN. And associated to which type it is, you have the value of it. And obviously the value uh, can change be between UPCA, which is 12 character, EN 13, and then UPC 8, which is only 8 characters. So this associated value can, do, can be stored and also do the validation for you and make sure everything is fine. Um, and that uh, enum have been, has been used uh, a lot in the past few weeks in my code. Um, and they helped me to better structure uh, my lo internal logic. Because sadly, uh, if you don't use, if you start to use non-integer type enum, they won't be able to be uh, shown in, shown public in the bridge. So if you want to access them in some Objective-C code, it is not available. So either you have to use integer one, or you just have to kind of have a an object interface to them. Uh, but it is super useful for uh, some cases we use them is it's super useful to have internal state in an object and to kind of uh, manage the logic in, in inside this uh, internal state. Uh, next feature, which is super related to uh, enum, is a statement that grew in power, and I would say that it's a switch statement. Yeah. And I have a complete example that happened to me uh, in the last few weeks. Um, especially in conjecture uh, with enum. So in Xcode, if you were using Objective-C and C-type enum, uh, Xcode is able to detect if your switch statement is handling all of the cases. So um, imagine you have state online, offline, and unknown. And uh, unknown is zero, online and, uh, offline is one, and online is two. So you have those three values. And if I don't implement in my switch case, that I want to do something with off offline, Xcode will tell me, you need to do something with offline or just say, I have a default path. The problem is in Objective-C, since it's based on the integer, and if you might want to store this integer in Cordata, for example, I'm just giving an example here. <laughs> and you kind of forgot that it is an integer base. And then when you were doing a Cordata stuff, you started to do like, okay, I don't want unknown to be zero. I want unknown to be a fancy value. And Cordata's default value for that field where you store the integer is zero. Then all of your switch case just get ignored because you don't handle the zero value and enum are not real data types. They're just a type alias on top of an integer. So I've uh, had to debug a fun bug that was caused by me, by the way. I am the only <laughs> dev to blame on that. Uh, but um, if it were to real to do uh, real switch cases, uh, not real, but swift switch cases, uh, that wouldn't add happen because uh, Xcode will have known and a Swift compiler will have known that there's only three possibilities. It doesn't assume, oh yeah, it's only three, but in reality, it's all of the numbers that an integer can store. Also, uh, Swift added tuples and tuples are super useful in uh, 
in the switch statement because you can do depending on which value is set or properties in the tuple you can do control flow using the tuple syntax another feature that i really enjoyed in the past few weeks of swift and makes make my code uh i would say simpler is the weak pointer management in closure blocks i don't know if you've used uh this new uh syntax for it I remember being very confused by how you did it in the Swift one days. I don't remember what the actual solution was. Yeah, I don't know what it was in Swift 1.0, but in Swift 2.0, you can define whether um, your pointer to your to self to your object, what it is. It's a like it's a retained style. Is it like you do you get the does the closure copy get a, a copy of the reference or just like it's a weak reference so if it goes away nobody uh is keeping a reference on it and it's just by mentioning at the beginning of the closure that you want yourself to be weak and then self become an optional and then you need to handle it as an optional uh in objective c it's a bit that you need to do to do the typical like weak self dance and you need to declare a pointer before your block and then in your block you need to remember that you've defined a strong pointer to that weak and not use self because if you use self it get captured so it's super error prone in objective c it's and such it's, a pain in the ass oh yeah yeah and you could you wouldn't guess how many like like retain cycle we had and just and the fix you look at the pr and the fix is just like you go from self to the variable we define and all of the prs just that like you have like three or four instances of blocks where we add an issue that either we're keeping so much memory at some point we'll crash the application and the fix is just a couple of lines of changing those so it's user super error prone and and especially when you're multiple devs they might not have realized that there was already a pointer and when in swift because it makes uh, self an optional swift will bitch about it because you will try to do something that oh it might be not there so you need to handle the optional properly and uh, lastly the other feature i really started to enjoy these days is the code written is less verbose than objective c and what i mean by that is the way you define either a struct or an object a class especially if it was a class you had to have at least two files and for my case uh for our case at work it it is minimum three so in objective c you have the header file the implementation file and then you have the test file and if it's a view controller you might have a zip file so and in swift you just have your swift file which merges both the interface and the implementation obviously what i've become to realize it's kind of a plus minus you know i love those like i love some part and i hate some part of it uh this is exactly one of them but i'm still on the plus side i still like this feature but what i've started to become is sometimes when you look at other people's code you just want i want to see the interface i don't care about the implementation of it just just want to see the interface but at least xcode is there for us when it doesn't crash and there's a feature to just see the generated interface so xcode with all of the semantics of swift is able to generate that for you and you don't have to maintain it yourself because part of the implementation file the there's some keywords that you use that that forces you to do that and then xcode is just able to read that and generate the interface file for you before i go on the feature i'm not getting used to do you have any special mention that you like to do now it's been so long since i've written swift that i can't really think of anything at the top of my head no that's okay no, no problem 
Um, now we'll go on the stuff I'm not getting used to. And the first one is, it's part of the rent I had, it's like all the, not all of them, but some of the functional programming feature. And I think one of them I'm still officially not getting used to and trying, still trying to understand their usefulness is global function. I think that the, the main reason why I don't get this feature is because I don't use it and I don't see how it could be a tool in my tool chain. So I'm not able to better understand it and then use it properly. Maybe if I were to do more functional programming, I would understand their usefulness, but I'm just trying to be transparent. I don't have any content about them because it's something kind of in the other side. It's not on the dark side, just on the other side. It's a feature that exists. There's some concepts concept attached to it. I think we could put, uh, like if we said that Objective-C has lightweight generics, then I could say that it's strong weight generics in Swift and all of the part that's, uh, that Objective-C doesn't support in generics is kind of it, um, it's a, it's a vague in my memory. I've seen them in previous languages and to understand how Swift does it compared to the languages I've seen and compared to the lightweight uh, generics we have in Objective-C, it's vague. Uh, I think Swift, yes, yeah, Swift 3 is, will uh, help me because it will import the lightweight generics from Objective-C to Swift. So now those lightweight generics will be part of the bridge. And some generics, if if you don't go too strongly in them in Swift, they'll be able to be exposed in Objective-C. And now we go to the main last two topics that you and I mentioned a lot this episode. Lack of source code compatibility and lack of binary stability. And compatibility at the same time. Uh, let's start with the first one. Even if we've, and personally, I haven't migrated any project. I don't have right now any Swift, personal Swift projects, but even if we haven't migrated major Swift code from one major version to another, it's not fun and I don't enjoy updating our project to the latest Xcode because it, become, it becomes so much a pain in the butt to do. Maybe it's because I'm stuck with our old habits. Like I remember not a, a long, not a long time ago that when you wanted to update Xcode, the main problem you have is either because Xcode is bitching, is giving you warnings like, can you update me to the latest version? So you have a warning just to update the metadata on your Xcode project. And then by doing that, sometimes uh, what happened is you still have like Xcode will enforce strict, stricter build, set, uh, build settings and or it will expose new build settings. So your code might fail those and then you have to fix them. But usually uh, we were good also at uh, keeping our code up to date to the latest iOS versions. So if we were to move to a new Xcode version with the new SDK, um, yes, we were having sometimes major issue to uh, not use deprecated APIs. But in general, migrating from minor version of Xcode like we did for Xcode 7 to Xcode 8 for Swift 2, uh, for most of the Swift 2 uh, era, it has be, it has transformed itself from being super easy or mildly complex in s rare cases to always being a pain in the butt. And I do know that this is part of Swift, the roadmap to Swift 4. The source code compatibility should come, quote unquote, should come uh, with Swift, core, uh, Swift 4. And I couldn't be more impatient about it. I really want it to happen. 
And that's why also I'm a bit uh, worried of the Swift migration, but uh, I'm sure we'll have a, a plan to make me... Uh, I'm sure I'll be able to uh, concoct, uh, create a plan with my colleagues to mitigate it. And just to add on that, after source code compatibility and stability, you also have binary stability. And that was supposed to be delivered for uh, Swift3 and but at the same time, you kind of understand, like you've seen people talking about what happened when they decided to be a bit more quick or too a bit too fast about ABI stability with Objective-C. And some people at Apple were kind of vocal by saying, yeah, we might have been a bit too fast with it, with Objective-C in the past. So I know we promised it for Swift 3. I know um, it could be a pain, when you have like shared frameworks if you don't have access to the code uh, but right now the major gripe if you weren't to have a shared framework and you don't want or you want to force your user either you just say i'm always following the latest swift version so every time there's a new xcode my code base needs to go through the migrator and make sure everything works on the latest swift and i don't have backward compatibility support or I complexify my code base. I have Swift like valid version validation in my code base and making sure, okay, if it's Swift 2, I do this. Or if it's Swift 3, I do that. Or in my source repository, I have a Swift 2 branch, a Swift 3 branch. And it just becomes like a whole mess. Yeah, that was one of the big issues I had with trying to integrate uh, third-party code into my apps was like, it's even more of a pain dealing with swift because you have to manage the versions they all have to be consistent with each other and i guess it's less of a big deal if you're dealing with uh open source projects because you can just migrate it yourself but at the same time you're like well i don't really want to be migrating this myself and unless it's like a big project with lots of visibility sometimes that's not guaranteed and then you sort of have to maintain it for yourself otherwise it doesn't continue moving along with you yeah, and like on the other spectrum, what we've seen right now is by being a bit slow to the Swift adoption, uh, when we want to do our Swift migration, we already checked and most of our third-party code that is in Swift is already on Swift 3 because they took that burden on moving fast on Swift 3. So we can have time to kind of plan it and make it happen. Compared if we were to ship uh, open source framework and I'm not planning about future plan here before somebody about my job ask about it. Like if we were to do that, it will make a burden on our team to update it like most of the third party open source code had to do. And if you have a closed source framework, it's still the same. You kind of need to have a Swift 3 binary, Swift 2 binary, and so or Swift 2.3 binary. So you'll still need to be always on the cutting edge and making sure because and I'm sure if you expose open source code and it's not updated there will be either somebody that wants to update it or that's, there will be somebody in your issues bitching about the fact that it's not updated and that is officially what concludes my episode on swift uh when swift was announced and at wwc 2014 i'll be honest with you i was a bit worried that it will quickly replace objective c a language that i think this episode demonstrated that both yannick and i love it but after nearly, what, a year? It's like nine, ten months right now that I've been using Swift. I seriously, like, it reminds me 
on when I when I started to learn Objective C, especially with my uh, knowledge of more like yes C based languages, more more like Java like languages. At first, it felt weird, it felt strange, but the more I immersed myself in them, the more I started to love Objective C, and then the more I started to love Swift so much. But I still do see the benefits of using Objective C, and what we've seen right now is Swift has big shoes to fill, and its current roadmap shows that it, it is up to the challenge. So in their own way, both languages makes me a better programmer, and I'm happy to have both of them in my developer toolbox. And I'm also happy that I can be forced to use them uh, each day, all day long, because I see the benefits of them, and I love them so much. Also, I'm super looking forward to uh, the Swift feature. I think one of them will one of the uh, future point that excites me the most about Swift is the Swift on the server workgroup. Apple is uh, getting like is putting their kind of idea and say like, oh yes, part of the Swift project, we will have a Swift workgroup to help third-party people or maybe create our own platform to do Swift on the server to create more backend Swift. There has been a couple of projects uh, to do Swift on the server, and now that Apple is putting some uh, quote unquote uh, like Swift money behind those projects, it is uh, super nice. Also, the Swift evolution is also an amazing place to spend some time if you want to understand and also help to uh, to help and help uh, Swift to grow. It is always a place I like to uh, hang out when I want to learn more about Swift. So that's it for this week. I hope uh, this episode what uh, was worth the hype because uh, we've been talking about doing a Swift episode for what at least two or three months. I think it's longer than that, way longer than that. Uh, I just have something to add before uh, we close the episode, and that is, I think like I'm a little biased towards Objective C because my career for six years was basically doing stuff that is impossible to do in Swift now, uh, like jailbreak tweaks are fundamentally dependent on the dynamic nature of the objective C runtime. And you can swizzle stuff in uh, swift, except it's limited to certain contexts. Like you have to use objective C bridged objects. If you want to do it in a sane way, otherwise the compiler can magically inline method calls anytime it wants. So you can't actually replace the implementation of methods globally for an entire binary and, do it safely which is sort of well i mean it's it's good if you're the developer of the original code it's bad if you're the hacker that wants to have fun and fuck around with shit uh so like there's a certain aspect of me that is sad that that sort of hacking mentality is sort of being lost with swift at the same time like i understand that there are security concerns with regarding that and all that stuff but still it was fun to hack on stuff in objective c while i could and i just like like it's so much fun to program in objective c i don't necessarily describe swift as being fun i describe it as an effective tool for the job yes but not fun and i think like we talk about like people moving to ios because they find it a more fun platform to work on even if it's not necessarily more effective that's sort of how i feel about objective c these days uh that said i know that like the pragmatism of being an Apple developer is look at the signs that Apple is giving you and deal with that. 
Uh, and it's clear that Objective C, while it's not like disappearing tomorrow, at least I hope not, uh, it, it, its time is limited and its influence is going to be significantly diminished over time. And we sort of need to get on the hype train for Swift. So that's what I had to say as a closing comment. Uh, before we do the traditional closing of the episode, uh, uh, I would like to plug something, if possible. Uh, before you do that, I just want to add the last thing and then uh just regarding your fun comment yeah and that's why i wanted to end in the conclusion saying like you know what when swift was announced i was worried because my fun language might go away and what i started to learn and trying to get is no no it's not going away it's being replaced by a differently fun other language and maybe it's maybe it's because you haven't find what for you is fun in swift or maybe sadly you might fi never find it you might still think that all of the advantages for you personally of objective c is still worth it for you and i and you might just bite the bullet and okay i need to work in swift now and it will be a tool and less fun but now even if i consider my usage of swift and our usage at work of swift more of an objective c 3.0 than a swifty stuff it is still fun to use I'm not sad when I have I am forced to go back in Objective C and do stuff. Do but you know, oh, go ahead. oh, but at the same time, I'm I don't have the urge to. Okay, no, I need to modify just a meta in the, uh, this Objective C file. I need to make it in Swift. Like we completely rewrite this view controller, for example, in Swift. No, no, it's like I'm still enjoying Objective C stuff, and I still enjoy when I need when I can't create new file and making sure they are in Swift. Well, at least Swift is more fun than Apple Script. <laughs> and on that note yeah uh, we'll so, end on that so yeah so there's something i want to plug before we uh, close the show uh, i've been working sort of on the side on a couple of websites uh since i've left my previous job and uh one of them is going to launch soon and so i would like to plug that if possible uh so my friend canon has been working on a card game for like a year, a year and a half, and it's finally going to be released uh, at Comiket at the end of the year in Japan. And a little later, there's going to be a small-scale uh, printing for an English version. Uh, it's called Mischief Club. You can go to the website at mischief.3coingames.com. And I did the website design. And uh, yeah, go check it out and see if that's something you'd be interested in checking out. Uh, also, one of my friends, Emily, has her own online store where she sells music gaming lifestyle goods. Uh, so if you know a music gamer or are a music gamer who would be interested in that kind of stuff, uh, you can go check out her store at concon.ticktail.com. There are going to be links in the show notes, which, coincidentally, you can find at limitlesspossibility.net slash 55. Uh, you can also find all of the episodes of our fine podcast at limitlesspossibility.net. Uh, the podcast is on Twitter, at Limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. You can also find us individually. I'm at Sakurina, S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A. -A, and Luc Olivier is at... Luc L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E. And that is it for the final episode of 2016, Lotus Possibility. We will see you in two months. <laughs> yeah, in uh, somewhat two months. I would like uh, to take a minute and maybe wish our listener happy holidays and happy 2017 i guess definitely